Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Front Line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Uh, we're going to jump right into it today because one of the things, Joe Resinello, I think Catholics don't talk about often enough is economics, not money. Okay, I mean, I mean, obviously, we talk about money all the time, but but basic economics and economic principles, particularly economic ideas, uh, as they relate to Catholic social teaching. All right, which is obviously very, very important. So we're welcoming back to the program Michael Graney and Dawn Brohan, uh, and the topic of the discussion is reforming the monetary system for the common good. Now that's a big topic for an hour, but we're going to do our best. Uh, to try to break it down. Now, most of you out there who know the front line with Joe and Joe know Michael and Dawn. However, Michael, uh, as a brief bio, Michael is a CPA, MBA, is a board member uh, and director of research for the Center for Economic and Social Justice in Arlington, Virginia. He's published articles and books on many subjects, including Catholic social teaching, banking, monetary history, and economic personalism, which we're going to talk about today. And he's a graduate in Notre Dame. Uh, Dawn, Bro Dawn Brohan is co-founder, board member, and director of CESJ. She's edited books, written articles, organized forums on natural law, uh, just third way economic de democratization, and justice-based management. Um, and she is a graduate of Georgetown University. Michael and Dawn, welcome back to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. It's good to be here. It's great to be back, Joe. It's always it's always wonderful to have you here. We always have a very lively and yes, informative and educational conversation, both for Joe and myself and for our audience. So we always welcome you on the show. With that, Joe Resinello. I will just begin with a short prayer in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, our most gracious Virgin Mary. Never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, before you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. A mother of the word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as Joe said, uh, Michael and Dawn are friends of the show. Um, and, you know, we've read their bio a number of times. I just wanted to just make a quick comment. Uh, Dawn went to Georgetown. Michael went to Notre Dame. I went to the University of Scranton, a Jesuit school, which means... I, in banking, I've worked in banking for 24 years. I work for people like Michael and Dawn my whole career, to be completely honest with you. This is true. <laughs> I'm being honest. And the reason why I bring that up is in banking, you know, there's all types of people, just like across all industries in, in America, um, Catholic, Jewish, secular people, Muslim people, all types of people. But we're talking about the common good. And I'm just going to First, we want to talk about what is it, but I just want to give you my observation. Um, again, I brought up, you know, they're Catholic people. I've worked for them. 
um, people who I remember working for someone who went to Georgetown. He ran the department at Prudential Securities. He had a huge job. He was as Machiavellian as you can get. I've worked for people from Notre Dame. Elbows are flying. No common good that I saw. None whatsoever. And when we're talking about the common good, I don't want to sanitize the fact, you know, as if we're talking like, oh, we're Catholic, blah, blah, blah. Well, I, I didn't see it, to be honest with you. So what is it? And frankly, we got to get there. Because if you want to be a Catholic and you want to follow the, the road to heaven, which is Jesus's example, he cared about the common good. We have to care about people. It doesn't matter that, you know, God gave you a gift. You're smart. Okay, good. What did you do with your gift? That's what we're talking about today. So we'll start with Dawn, the common good. What is it? And then we'll pivot to Michael and he will enlighten us. Yeah. Well, before Dawn talks about the common good, I thought I would talk about very, very briefly the focus of the common good and the whole idea of economic personalism, which the focus of the common good is the human person. Otherwise, there wouldn't be no, no reason for the common good. And economic personalism, and I just thought this up, is economics of the person, by the person, and for the person. Isn't that a brilliant thing to say? Anyway. I'm depressed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and now Don will talk about, well, what the heck is this common good? Right, so Mike jumped on my line here. Um, but... Uh, in terms of what is economic personalism and how it relates to the common good, it starts with our understanding of the human person as both unique, one of a kind, but also a member of society and members of groups. And that's how human beings um, develop and grow, not only as isolated individuals, and that's very rare. It's through interactions with other people. And so to enable development on more than a just a, a very slow and basic level, we create social institutions, which include, you know, our money system, you were talking about the, the investment industry, uh, government, um, you know, banks, all sorts of the, the you know, religious institutions, human beings put there, they come together and they develop these. And we're, when we talk about economic personalism, we're talking about how the idea of uh, producing and consuming, and that's basically economics, how do each of us uh, produce and consume the things we need, the things we want, and hopefully a free market economy. But when we're talking about um, institutions that affect that money and credit are one of if not the most essential of the institutions now when we look at the common good uh and i'm uh, referring to how i understand it from the writings of father william Faree, and in his introduction to social justice he connects the idea of the human person not just as a unique individual, but also as a member of society, that you have to keep these two aspects uh, in your mind. And when he talks about social justice, for example, he's not talking about collectivism. He's talking about how each of us as members of groups, members of society, can come together to create and perfect 
our social institutions so that we all may develop to our fullest potential, which, which God has given us. So what someone may not be able to do as a sole individual in isolation, when they are able to come together, work with others, and, and also take advantage of the genius of, you know, the time before them. You know, this is history is built upon ideas and inventions that, you know, our predecessors. So when an institution goes bad, for example, and I think you put your finger on um, how the institution dealing with our money, and it's not only banks and central banks, but also other financial institutions, when that loses sight of the fact that the common good, it's which Free defines as that interconnected network of social institutions we create, which like light or air, we each of us is meant to be able to access equally, that you can't possess all of the air, you can't possess all light, but if you don't have those things, each of us as individuals are not gonna thrive and we'll probably die. Um, so when we talk about, and this is very important, is that economic personalism is looking both how, at how each of us as human beings can develop our uniqueness, our personality, our, our talents, but we do it within the context of this, it, it's a social environment, institutional environment, which must serve the good of each and every person. As soon as you detect that a person, any person anywhere is being harmed or being blocked from access to the common good, it's, you identify which institution is, is causing the problem. In the case you're saying is the financial institution is just so cutthroat and not thinking about you know, how it as an institution will serve every human being. Where that's the case, and you can see the damage it's, that's been done. I mean, there's pretty much criminal activity going on and it's it becomes legal. <laughs> when that happens, then all of us who are affected by it have to see how we can reform that institution. Now, uh, what's interesting that Father Free pointed out, and I didn't really understand for years later, is that when he talked about an act of social justice to correct institutions and correct the common good, that he said it's a responsibility of each of us. And looking at intro to uh, social justice, Again, I, I noticed that he does place a personal responsibility on each of us. And I'm going, and you know, how are you going to do that? The common good is so huge and there's so many institutions. And the point he made was that at the level of the common good, meaning if you're interacting in an institution or using it, at that level, you can work with other people to fix where whatever defects may exist there, but always with the idea that what you do, and this is going back to your, you know, the financial industry, whatever you do within your institution has an effect at all levels of the common good. And if it's harming the higher levels or the lower levels, that means there's a defect and we have to fix it. So Dawn, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> no, that's okay. Dawn Brohorn and Michael Graney are joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joan. We're talking about the common good. We're talking about um, you know, specifically reforming the monetary system for the common good. Let me ask you a question because, uh, Michael, I want to I wanna go to you and want to talk about um, how we emphasize, let's say, let's say one of those institutions, Dawn, might be what we would call, let's say, a corporation. 
an enterprise, okay, that's meant to provide a product or service um, and employ people, make a profit, all right, because even the church says if you don't have a profit, you don't have a company, okay, that measures the health of the corporation, okay? So I want to talk about that, but doesn't it require a shift in the way we think, particularly in America? And yes, this is a judgment from me. I'm not going to speak for Joe. I'm judging America. We treat people as means and not as ends, okay? That's the problem. To have a more, let's say, Thomistic view. What is what, what am I supposed to do? I need to treat, I, I, I need to respect, um, will the good of the other. Go ahead, Michael Graney. Yeah, actually, this fits right in with what Don was saying with respect to the common good. <laughs> and this is where you put on your hip waders for a minute, and this gets back to Aristotle and Aquinas, is that the good common to every single human being, the common good, in a philosophical sense, is that, now this is where I put, put on your waders, the analogously complete capacity to become more fully human by acquiring and developing virtue. What that means is that we're all fully human and human in the same way, but we need to acquire humanness virtue to become more fully human. In other words, what God intended us to be. Uh, in other words, you shall be like gods. Well, that doesn't mean we're going to be gods. That means we're going to be acquire more of that which makes us more fully human, which is part of a reflection of God's nature. Now, how do we do that? By, excuse me, by exercising our natural rights. Our natu natural law means this is what our humanity is. And our natural rights of life, liberty, and from this perspective, private property. Well, how do we acquire private property in today's age? Through access to money and credit. If there is anything in our financial institutions that inhibits or prevents an otherwise qualified person from acquiring access to money and credit to purchase you know, productive assets, that is preventing someone from acquiring and possessing private property and therefore exercising private property, which is the chief support of life and liberty. How do we become more virtuous? Well, by exercising life, liberty, and private property. Even the ancient Romans recognized this. Oh, yeah, and you'll see it in the parable of the talents in the, in the New Testament. A man calls in three slaves. Now, a lot of modern translations cover that up. He says, calls in three employees. No, they weren't employees. They were slaves. He owned them. But he said, I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to assign you this much money, you a lesser amount, and you a lesser amount. I'm going on a trip. Do with it what you will. He comes back, and the one guy says, I doubled your money. And the next guy says, I doubled your money too. The other guy says, I buried it in the ground. Okay, the master says to the guy who doubled the money first, says, I'm setting, if you'll read the language carefully, it says, I'm setting you free and I'm giving you all that money because you're a good and faithful servant. Now you're my equal. Come share your master's joy. Does the same for the next one. The third one who buried the money in the ground, he kicks out and takes the money and gives it to the, to the first guy. It's very important to exercise private property in order to support your life and liberty, a very important part of liberty is being able to support yourself and that of, and your dependents. And if the financial system inhibits or prevents this, 
It is preventing you from becoming more fully human. And virtually the whole of the financial system today is directed to that. And we can blame a lot of people, and I have a long lecture on that, but I won't inflict it on you. Well, that's what Joe and I talk about all the time, is that we have to take off our political ideological hats, all right, because the criticism goes right across the political spectrum, okay, from left to right. And and Joe and I have a big problem, particularly, particularly with conservatives and people who in, you know, let's say on some level would agree with what we're saying and yet don't do a damn thing about it. Joe Racinello, I cut you off. I apologize. No, it's OK. I, I Everything both of you said I agree with. But this is my experience. Again, I worked in banking. I was an auditor and now I'm a compliance officer. How I get people to do things sometimes very senior people, is through leverage. They don't do it because they want to. And when I mean do things to follow the policies, the procedures, and the regulations of the market, leverage. People understand that in business. But why would, say, the chairman of Goldman Sachs want to build a virtuous system? It's not the nature of the beast. You can't invite an alligator in your house and say, don't eat the kids. It's not in its nature. And this is the, 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 the question that I put to you. And everything you said, I agree with 100%. And as a Catholic, I have to agree with. Not enough Catholics think that way, Fair in, in all fairness. Because to be honest with you, Michael used the, 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 the example of the three slaves who were given a talent. We have responsibility to other. God gives us this, and he is going to collect. People don't think about that, but he's going to. Those who've been given much, much is expected. With that said, how do you change that mentality? You see, you're we're, we're going up against an individual that only understands leverage. What's in it for me? What am I getting out of it? And you know something? I'm gifted and you're not and too damn bad. I'm glad Joe's asking that. I want, yeah, because we're about trying to find or what we hope would be so solutions. So just to, I, I just, Joe, I'm not putting words no, in your no. mouth, but I really would like to 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 to, to, to <clears throat> make it a little, a little bit more focused. Joe's talking about what needs to change, reform. When it comes to reforming, that's what we're talking about, the monetary system for the common good, okay? Um, is, there, is there a just third way? Um, and so I want to ask that, but I know Michael wants to make a point first, but that's my, that's where Joe and I were kind of going with that. Yeah. Well, he was talking about what's the leverage here. Well, take a look at the trillions of dollars in debt right now that just the United States has. And what's going to happen if we don't solve that problem and also ask these filthy rich people who want to control others through their wealth, what's going to happen if the people rise up and manage to gain access to a rope and swing it around a lamppost? Guess where you're going to be? We have an easier way out for you, and you'll actually make money doing it, which is what Dawn is going to talk about. Right. I think I want to start with the comment that you made, Joe, that we need to think differently. And this is why uh, CESJ refers to economic personalism as the just third way. And in terms of economics, we would say it's the alternative, the moral alternative to capitalism and socialism or socialism communism, which are economic reflections of individualism and collectivism. 
but in terms of the economy, in terms of issues like private property, how we, they're viewed in those systems. In one, it's we talk about the rights of private property, but few people have access to the means to acquire the productive things that you would exercise ownership rights in. The other says, no, individuals should not own property. That should be the collective, and which ends up being the state, whoever is mm. in charge. And who's ever in charge of the state, it, actually, it, who end up being the people who own the capital in the private sector. So capitalism and socialism are the same thing. They're very, very Those are the animals that are more equal than others. <laughs> exactly. And they, and they are constantly in conflict. But as Mike says, they're, it's basically... Um, they're anti-person ideologies and systems. Now, personalism, um, you're looking at both aspects, necessarily uh, understanding that we are both individual, but we are also members of society. We have responsibility to other people. So when we look at the money system, and this is to get back to Joe R's um, statements about what he is experiencing you know, in, in today, real life today, and that is how one of the key institutions, money, and you know that's at the basis of banking and financial services, et cetera, and trade and whatever else. But it's also in our understanding of money that we can see how to change the institutions that create and administer and, uh, and, and help us use money. And that is in the other systems, and Mike will go into this in more detail in terms of the history of this, um, money is looked at as a commodity. So you've gotten into this whole problem of you know, gambling and speculating and just trading of money and exchange rates and, you know, and things like that. So the, the just third way, personalism is looking at this is a tool. This is a human created tool. And if you use it well, we can all benefit. If you use it in a bad way, maybe some will benefit, but most of us won't. So looking at money, and this is really key, we understand it as simply a way of measuring value in our exchanges, you know, in the marketplace and coming to some com common understanding agreement that when I exchange something I have for what you have, there's a fair exchange. So this notion in personalism of money and property and every other institution is that it must reflect the basic principles of justice, economic justice, and social justice. So Mike, Mike can get more into, for example, um, and I think probably Joe R. will recognize this, the concept of the uh, currency principle versus the banking principle. And that is very key to how we develop in the future in a way that's sustainable, that's environmentally responsible, but it also is understood to be something of a social tool this is money and credit that can be made accessible in a very organized feasible uh business-like way to each individual from the day they're born to the day they die and so that's in terms of how you do that the legislation that's what uh the economic democracy act is which i would um, encourage people to visit our website at ces org and um, look at what we're um, proposing in terms of that. But Mike, maybe you'd like to yeah. elaborate. As uh, Don pointed out, uh, and I have a real long series of lectures on this one that you're 
going to be saved from. Uh, there are two fundamental ways of looking at money. And they can all be used, you know, boiled down in what they call the quantity theory of money equation, which I won't uh, get into because uh, I don't have a chalkboard. Uh, but they're called the currency principle and the banking principle. The currency principle was developed by people who didn't know what banking money and credit or finance were, believe it or not came out of the British Bank Charter Act of 1844. Uh, the banking principle was developed over centuries uh, and was best stated by uh, three people, two of whom everybody hates and one of whom hardly anyone ever heard of, Adam Smith, Henry Thornton, and Jean-Baptiste. The currency principle is very easy to understand and it's what drives most politics and the insane economics we see today. It's that the quantity of money determines the level of economic activity. In other words, you need money to make money. You can't do anything without money. You have to have money first. Well, money is a derivative of production. And basically what the currency principle says is that production has to precede itself because you don't have any money unless you have production. But how can you have production unless you have money? The banking principle is much, much easier to understand and makes more sense, mainly because binary economics that we're talking about is based on the banking principle. So, of course, it's the only thing that makes sense. And that is the level of economic activity determines the quantity of money. And this goes back to Adam Smith's first principle of economics, which is consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. It's not to create jobs. It's not to accumulate savings to reinvest. The only reason you should produce something is because you want to consume it or somebody else does, which leads into what Jean-Baptiste, he didn't really develop it, but he gave it its name because he gave it its clearest expression, Say's Law of Markets, which is that given that consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production, as Adam Smith said, you cannot consume anything that has not been produced. Duh. Okay. But you, which means that you either consume, you either produce something to consume yourself, which if you're all alone on a desert island means if you, you have to produce everything you're going to consume, or you produce something that you can trade to someone else who has produced something that you have, that they have produced that you want to consume. And this thing that by means of which I exchange what I produce for what you produce is called money. Money does not exist until I have produced something and you or promised to produce something and you have something or promised to produce something and we exchange it or agree to exchange it. And we can even create something we call a currency by which we hold a promise to exchange in the future what we've produced at some time. We can complete the transaction. And that's all that money is. It's a way of exchanging what people produce. But it assumes that you've either produced or are going to produce, whereas the currency principle says, oh, no, you have to have money before you can even produce, which is, it, it turns everything upside down which you see in Keynesian economics, which is why we have trillions of dollars worth of debt built up because, oh, we need to create money before we can produce. No, you need to produce before you can create money. 
Why is it necessary, Michael Graney? Uh, we're going to go to a break. Um, when it comes to, let's say, money, wh why do, wh what is the benefit to just keep printing and printing and printing and printing? Why can't we just have a stable money supply and get? let's get back to the days where a penny actually was worth something and you could buy something with it? I know that's kind of a broad question, but I was always curious about that. Why the necessity to keep printing? Does the amount of dollars in my pocket, if, if a penny buys me a dozen eggs, well, right now that penny would be worth about $4.50. I went to the supermarket yesterday, and that's disgusting. Um, actually, let me leave that question out there, all right? Maybe we'll revisit that. We're going to a break. Dawn Brohan, Michael Graney are joining us here. We're talking about reforming the monetary system for the common good. We're Catholics. We have to talk about these things. We have to talk about the common good. We have to understand the principle of the common good. We have to understand economics, or at least basic economics. So that we can understand how we're getting ripped off on a on a daily basis, particularly in America. Um, so we're going to uh, take a quick break at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Joe Pasillo and Joe Rosanello, we're way in the breach. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. We have more of this great conversation with Michael and Dawn. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. Let's jump right back into the conversation, reforming the monetary system for the common good. Michael Graney and Dawn Brohorn joining us here. Joe Racinello, where do you want to go? Michael, when you were breaking down, like, what money actually is, it sounded very utilitarian. I mean, I have something. You need something. We make an exchange. But again, I'm a jaded man who's worked in banking for 24 years, and I have to just bring this up. That's not how people think. They want more. Like, I can remember my aunt. My my parents were simple people. You know, my my grandparents came from Italy. They lived in Newark, you know. My aunt saying we were down the shore, Jersey Shore, and she saw this big house and she said, oh, gosh, they must have such a big family that they have such a big house. I was like, Aunt Lydia, I highly doubt that they have a big family. Maybe they do. But a lot of times it's two people, three people living in a monstrosity. Why? Because people don't think from a utilitarian uh, position. I want it. And you mentioned before, Michael, leverage, that eventually, you know, the people are going to come for you. People like that understand that. But outside, and this is where I'm going with this, outside of a God, outside of, as a Catholic, I see Jesus in the Eucharist. And if I see God in a piece of bread, I have to see him in my fellow man. And I have to do right by him or her. I have to, because God said so, and he's in that person. Outside of that idea, I don't understand the motivation for, say, someone who's brilliant, who went to MIT, who's running a company, and basically like, good for me and tough for you. Mine has, yours don't, tough. You wash my car. I'm interested in both. Again, I have to go back to this because this is my experience because I'm the one washing the car. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can answer it first in three simple words. John Maynard Keynes. Now, to explain that, you know, from ancient times, people were taught, and this is pagans, Christians, Jews, Muslims, everybody. 
the idea was moderation in all things. Don't be greedy. Yes, it's okay to be rich, but use your wealth wisely. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, I mean, Joseph of Arimathea, quintessential good rich man, used his wealth to buy a tomb for Jesus and was very charitable to the poor. Um, even the rich pagans thought, I mean, the Appian Way, that was built by a private project by a man who then built a road and then gave it to Rome, the people, simply because we need a road here. Let's have, I'll build it and give it away to people. Do good with your money. Well, then along comes John Maynard Keynes. And he says, the purpose of production is not consumption, uh, except by human labor. Only human labor is allowed to produce what it consumes. Everything else should be piled up so that we can reinvest in new capital to create the environment, to create jobs within which people can use their human labor to create what they need to consume. So that the more you build up, the more you're benefiting humanity by piling up incredible amounts of wealth to create jobs by investing in new capital that generates even more money to pile up to create more jobs for people. Well, Michael, what's wrong with that? I'm, well, I'm, being, I'm being a little devil's advocate. What's wrong with that? Well, the problem with that is that, as Jean-Baptiste Say pointed out more than 200 years ago, the purpose of technology is not to enhance human labor. It's to replace it. Guess what happens when you in, build new technology and advancing technology? You lose your job. Right. Now, new jobs may be created, but they're completely different from the jobs that were destroyed. And it's very rare that machines create new jobs, except uh, one instance that was a complete anomaly was the cotton gin. That created all kinds of new jobs for slaves. All of a sudden, slavery, which was starting to die out in the United States, took off like a rocket. And what about all the advancing technology in the 1920s and the teens? of the you know in, in the 20th century manufacturing jobs were disappearing at an incredible rate well what where did all the new employment come from well from the office workers who had to keep track of all the incredible amounts of goods and services that were being produced by the machinery and you had gigantic rooms full of stenographers and typists and bookkeepers to try to keep track of all this well guess what happened when the personal computer came in all of a sudden, thousands of office workers started losing their jobs. Technology does not enhance labor. It replaces it. And Is that it, not a danger? Is that not a danger moving forward, given what we're hearing now with AI and everything else? Is that not something we ought to resist? Well, as Kelso pointed out, and as Don will elaborate, if the as Lewis Kelso was quoted as saying in an interview in 1964 in Life magazine, if the machine wants our job, let's buy it. Okay, and then the question is, how do you do that? And I'd like to give my own uh, forward, uh, forward uh, response to, to both of you, and that is own or be owned. And what we're in right now, the system all over the world, guiding every political system, every economic system, financial, educational system is a wage welfare slave system. 
Now they're going to be some people at the top, and you can see that the number of those at the top is shrinking, while those at who are what you might say in the middle and bottom that that's growing. What we're talking about is how do you shift to an ownership system, and and with that we're saying universal equal opportunity for every person to become an owner of capital, so that they own not only their labor you know, as what they would um, supply in as being workers, but also how do you participate in the production process? Through your contributions and your ownership of capital things, which as Mike pointed out, technology is, um, it's improving at a just an astronomical rate. And that's what it's designed to do. It's to replace the need for toil. You know, if we're talking in economic sense, there's, as Kelso said, there's toil, economic work you do because you have to survive. And then there's leisure work, which is what Aristotle was talking about, that if you didn't, you know, have to think about money, what would you do because you love to do it and because it would contribute to the betterment of society, civilization, and the common good? So what we're talking about, and we're looking in the future, what we're we're trying to bring about through institutional change is a it's future based so when we talk about money and this is a very key thing because what uh, joe r was saying and I, I do want to you know respond to you know he's living right in the in the belly of the beast so he can see all the you know the the good and bad and abuses that are taking place and certainly he understands that it's not set up to serve the good of our our fellow man and woman so what is at the heart of that that's what we really need to first understand in order to change the institutions that are keeping us trapped in a wage welfare system uh, uh, state and that is what we would call past savings and future savings. And I, I also, I wanted to just um, bring to mind one of the words you used, Joe, which was leverage. It's interesting because the the way it was, Joe R was referring to it was a way that you force someone to do what you want them to do, okay? What, when we talk about leverage, for example, in um, in designing, um, employee stock ownership plans and doing buyouts using techniques like that. We're talking about people who don't have enough past savings to go, you know, to just buy the company. Let's say they, uh, the owner wants to sell, the workers love the company, they would love to buy it. If you ask them to put up their savings or past savings to buy it out, they wouldn't have enough money. Okay. So, how do you use leverage? In that case, we're talking about being able to borrow in a feasible way in order to purchase those things. And now we're talking about a productive, well-managed company that can produce enough profits in the future to use those future profits to pay off the loan, the acquisition loan. So when we use the word leverage, it's a very good thing as long as it's accessible and being managed um, in a, a, a way that a banker and a business person would say, look, this, uh, you're talking about the likelihood that you're going to be able to pay the loan off with future profits. Let's look at, 
your product, your market, your you know management, your workforce, your track record. And if you you know if you've shown that you are uh, a, a company that is um, operating well, a healthy company, then yes, up to a certain amount of money that you borrow, you can project that over you, you'll be able to pay off that loan. So the key thing, and Mike, he has his finger up because he's going to talk about the difference between past savings and future savings, and why we must. If you're if you want to change the system, it's going to be in how we understand and use money and how what we use in order to finance new capital growth that should be owned by every person in a private property uh, frame. Yeah. So and Brohan and Michael Graney are joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello, reforming the monetary system for the common good. Michael Graney. Yeah. See, what we're talking about is an incredible shift in people's perception of how you finance the future. And this is where Keynes really destroyed, you know, not only the economy, but how people think about the economy. According to Keynes, you have to have wealth piled up before you can do anything at all, which begs the question as to where did that wealth come from in the first place if you hadn't done anything. I mean, it's a complete paradox and it's irresolvable. Uh, but what we're talking about is a shift from the, the whole Keynesian notion, actually the whole currency principle notion that in order to finance, you must cut consumption in the past and pile up something. We're talking about shifting to, instead of cutting consumption in the past, increasing production in the future. Both meet the definition of savings. We're not saying you don't need savings in order to finance new capital formation. We're just saying that you change how you accumulate the savings rather than accumulate them by not consuming and piling up useless stuff that you did not for consumption, which is ridiculous because how do you turn it into money savings except by consuming it, uh, to we can increase production in the future and at the present day, we will promise to pay you out of those future promises if you create the money today that we can increase the production and then cancel the money once it's done its work. Rather than let's print up a bunch of money that inflates the currency and steals wealth from the people whose wealth is denominated in money right? and shift it to the people who are going to do it and give us the payoff. I said, the whole idea behind Keynesian economics is to steal from people from one set of people, the poor, to give to the rich so that you look good by saying, but we're creating jobs for the poor. Well, no, yeah, yeah, which you paid, which the poor paid for by having their money depreciated. Yeah, right. I, no, no, exactly. Go ahead, Dawn. Yeah. And I think another key point is that, you know, who is creating the money? That's a very important question. How is it being created? Because you, you were mentioning, Joe, you know, this idea of inflation. You know, why not just keep printing up paper? Okay, well, we would say if that new money in the form of currency or whatever is not matched by new uh, production either or, or, or backed by production that either exists now or is going to be produced, then that money has its its counterfeit counterfeit money. So what right. stands 
what stands behind you know the the bills today that are not backed by private sector production it's government debt and right. the, the government is able to do that well the u.s government maybe not greece but the u.s <laughs> government has I, you know frankly it's our economy is so strong that as much as the federal government is putting us sinking us into a, a pit so far, we can still get out of it, you know, as long as the economy is truly productive. I was going to say, Dawn, that at some point, like, uh, you know, like uh, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin saying, when the levy breaks and the uh -huh. levy, can, you know, eventually the levy will break. Dawn uh, Broho and Michael Graney joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Resinello. Basically, you guys are talking about humanizing a corporation. You're just making it human. Um and, and to be honest with you, what you got both kind of described is what stock is about, right? Isn't that the idea? You sell stock to people and their co-owners. Well, it doesn't work that way. Uh, sadly, what happens is you become a line on a spreadsheet and the dividend drives the day. If you're not making money, they fire people. That's what happens in my world. Uh, when the company does not make money, they take it with human heads. I think as the world gets colder, and it is getting colder, people of goodwill have to embrace ideas like this and form companies, mom and pop companies with this idea. And this is like where I want to go with it, to get this off the ground. I think this is a hard sell for, say, Bank of America or Citi or Goldman Sachs. Um, but I do think people of goodwill who want to help all people and benefit can start. Let's talk about that. How do we get this off the ground? Like people who don't have capital and there's, listen, there's tons of people who are, who are Catholic people of goodwill who want to help others. Look, Elon Musk to a degree, you know, here he is. He, he wants free speech. He put down $44 billion, you know, like, like him or not, it's, it's something good. How do we get this off the ground? Because I think as the world gets colder, people have to circle up. What are your thoughts? Starting it up. How do we start it up? I, well, I think, first of all, it's already, in one sense, it, it has started. Um, and this is the, the idea of the employee stock ownership plan is looking at how people working in a company can become co-owners of that company without requiring that they put up their any savings or reduce their take-home pay. And that is that's been used very successfully in very large companies. I think public supermarket was uh, one of the largest. Um, Avis at one point was uh, bought out by the employees with an ESOP and then sold to a billionaire. Um, you have small companies. The, the key thing is that you have to have a productive company. And that's one difficulty with startups is that they don't really have a track record where it's easy for them to get this sort of a loan but or any loan yeah yeah what we would see though is with certain incentives and um i think there are also some financial companies edwards uh I forget which one, you know, the, what uh, their name is. Yeah, the, the National Center for Employee Ownership. Uh, what's that again? A.G. Edwards? I AG think Edwards. so. 
Yeah, I think um, it, it's employee-owned. Yeah, if you, if you go to the website of the National Center for Employee Ownership, they have a list of 100 biggest worker-owned companies. Yeah, so. and, and that's so you could see the wide variety of engineering companies, agricultural, uh, retail, you know, um, home builders. Agricultural. You know, it just uh, many, many different companies of different sizes are using this technique. Now, the problem CESJ would say with this um, limiting this approach to employees through the ESOP is that, you know, as Mike said, technology is reducing the need for labor, human labor. So we need to be able to connect every person, whether they're a worker or not a worker, whether they're able-bodied or, you know, not able to work, and we can do it throughout a person's life. Now, the key is, do you have access to capital credit? And we would say the way we're talking about it would be interest-free capital credit that is insured. The insurance is used in uh, place of traditional collateral that if you have a, if you're investing in the growth shares of a company that's well-managed, then it is, that company becomes your way of owning something that will produce to pay off the loan you use to to acquire it so there's you know this is getting kind of a, a, a garbled simplistic way of explaining how the finance works but my point is that there are certain things that were put into the law as incentives and that is the ability to borrow and repay with pre-tax dollars both not only interest payments but principal payments so the ESOP and it can also pay out dividends and deduct dividends. So there are certain benefits to a business to use this approach. Right. Michael, I know you want to chime in on that. Michael. Yeah. Well, especially for Catholics, they like to point to the, you know, the Mondragon experiment in the Basque region of Spain. And that has many of the characteristics that we're talking about. But there are two serious flaws in that. One, it's all past savings based. For some reason, they did not lack, you know, connect into the commercial banking system in Spain. The, the, the bank that they started is, is what they call a bank of deposit. You can't, it doesn't have anything to lend unless people put something into it or capitalize it. That's the one thing. The other thing is that employment and ownership is very restrictive. One, it's only to one class of workers, not all workers. Mondragon's been pulling a switcheroo by hiring a lot of foreign workers and not cutting them in on the ownership. Right. Plus, it's restricted solely to workers, not the families, not the residents of the area who are equally affected by it. So it's a good example and a good start, but it's only a start. It's not the end toward which you want to go. No, I, I, I have a question. You're, you're talking about, uh, obviously, having uh, access to credit. Banks lend money, uh, let's say, ideally, to those who have a good idea. They want to go out. They want to start a business. Here, here's $100,000. Uh, just say, what banks right now lend money to those who want to start businesses, and they do that for a, an interest rate that is compounded annually. Um, is it realistic um, to think that, well, banks need to get back to taking risk. 
and 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 a compound interest loan to a prospective business owner who's looking to finance his company. The bank is not taking any risk, really. And I, unless I'm wrong about that, Dawn, I'll ask you. I want banks to actually start taking risks because I believe that's what they used to do. Wall Street firms used to take a little bit more of a risk. They, they're basically coming more and more to the point where finance for the financial institutions to finance these enterprises is becoming at or near risk-free for them. That shouldn't be that way, I think. Well, you're absolutely right. And it's a question of, in this approach we're talking about it for financing the economy's growth, um, how do we disperse risk? How, how do we spread it out? You're absolutely right. The, the banks have to have some skin in this game. They have to make good judgments as to which loans are going to be feasible. What we're talking about, which I think it will re require another discussion with you, is you know what? Is, what are the mechanics for what we're talking about? Because what Joe R is talking about is the existing financial system, which is dehumanizing. It's just not only. Um, commoditizing money, but it it's really a worship of money and just utter selfishness, you know, no concept of the common good. What we're talking about is going back to um, the original concepts of central banking. So, and you, the commercial banks as being a conduit and a, also a way of vetting the feasibility of loans being made and the insurance companies now providing a substitute for the, the collateral, which required that you be rich in order to get more money. Right. But all of this, it's the, there is risk involved that a loan may not pan out. And that's why you have a, 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 the whole system has to take that into account with insurance. So the central bank in this in the US it's the federal reserve has 12 regional banks that were supposed to have the power to create money as needed for all sorts of business financing needs whether it's agriculture industry you know manufacturing whatever that you never should have to say there's not enough currency in the system that's irrelevant it's do you have uh, projects capital projects that most likely, they show a very good chance they, that they will be paid off. They're feasible loans. If you have that, then money creation is a response to, as Mike said, to production, either existing or future production, that you are just, you match it. You never put out any more units of money than will be reflected sometime either at present, present inventories or future growth that you have a market for, that you can pretty much you're assured um, that you're going to have customers who will buy your the future product goods and services you produce. So this, Joe R., you are someone who is within an institution that needs serious uh, reform. reform. Understatement. It's an understatement, <laughs> exactly. But you're also exactly the sort of person that we need to, re to change, to reform the financial system. And we're... This is interesting because I know just from personal experience going to ESOP, the National ESOP Association, they have conferences every year. And um, I've been involved in this work, you know, when the ESOP Association was first formed many, many years ago. And what I detected was as Wall Street investment banks started, um, you know, they see, oh, this 
device is becoming popular. It's got tax breaks. Now, how do we turn that into, you know, something that will be a product for us to sell? Well, as they got more involved in it, the original idea of the ESOP began disappearing. And that was, this is a tool that you can use not only to buy out a company, but to finance its future growth. So the, the traditional uh, financial advisors holds a lot of the thinking uh, that's going on in the ESOP community back to the past savings approach where, you know, uh, workers are just, they're, they're assets. Oh, you're an asset. You know, don't tell me I'm an asset. That's you're saying I'm a thing. So you are the sort of person that we want to be involved in the process of finding leaders who think like you in your industry, who could see not only the morality and justice of this approach, but also that it's good business. There's going to be tremendous need for people who know how to assess loans. And in terms of the bigger approach we're talking about, where individuals would have their own individual accounts by which they would uh, have an allocate or the right to an allocation of credit if they can find the investments. We need people who can say, yes, this is real, you know, or this is bogus, so you don't qualify to sell, sell your shares, and you're, you know, when we're not going to give loans to buy your shares. So that is a sort of thinking, leadership thinking of money as a liberator versus money as an enslaver. Dawn, we have to leave it there. I apologize. That sets up part four with with, with, uh, with Dawn and Michael, Joe Resinello. And we love it because, because we have to start thinking differently. I would just end it with this. What you're talking about, about banking, I think that's obviously symptomatic of what's going on in the economy as a whole. It is a distorted and perverted view of the human person. And underlying, I think, this conversation is correcting that yes. first. And you're offering means by which we could then go about that. So thank you both, as always, for coming on the show. Where can people find you real quick, Dawn? Go to www.cesj.org. And be sure to read our, the book Mike and I co-authored this year called The Greater Reset, Restoring Personal Sovereignty Under Natural Law. Awesome. And that's available at Tan Books. We encourage you all to go out and buy it. Thank you for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe and the Veritas Catholic uh, Radio Network. Remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>